Let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter, 17 verses. Matthew 3, 1 to 17. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle upon his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, worthy of repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees, and therefore every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then comes Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray once more before we begin. Father in heaven, as we look at this chapter and peer back into history, sacred history, Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes and the ears that we need in order to understand and see the things that have happened in the past that pertain to us today. And I thank you for giving us this book of Matthew and this chapter and sending John and sending your son. And I pray that you would help us have a greater understanding and appreciation for what you've done and what it means for us today. And God, we pray that you would be honored and that we would leave this place honoring and glorifying you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at the fascinating ministry and life of John the Baptist. It's interesting that the Gospels skip over 
30 years of Jesus' life, roughly 30 years of Jesus' life. I mean, we have a little snippet of him at the temple when he's about 12. But for the most part, all four of the gospel authors skip over the vast majority of Jesus' life. Think about it. God becomes incarnate, and the vast majority of his life is, is of uninterest to the apostles. Or at least not... It's not their concern to record that for us to know. What this tells us is that it's not just the mere fact of the incarnation that's significant. And I think I've mentioned this before, but many, many people believe that what makes Jesus so special and what accomplishes reconciliation between us and God is the mere fact that God became a man and God bridged the gap, the metaphysical gap between the divine and the not divine. The very fact that in one man was found both humanity and divinity is to many just enough. That's all there really is to know about Jesus. That's the important stuff to know about Jesus. God became a man and now we can relate to God. But that's not true because if that was true, I think his whole life would be of interest to us, wouldn't it? Everything that the God-man did would be of interest to us. So what we learn from this, skipping over of the vast majority of the life of Christ, is that the really important and significant aspect of Jesus Christ and what his purpose was in coming and what affects reconciliation isn't the mere fact that he incarnated, but it is his death. And of course, his short ministry of three years preaching, which is all leading up to his death. That is of a supreme importance. As amazing as it is that God became a man, if that's all we knew, that wouldn't do us much good. What we need to know is what the apostles are pressing upon us and drawing all of our attention to and saying, look, listen, yes, God became a man, but for what purpose did he become a man? Look at the significance of his life. So we come to John the Baptist we're going to look at three things this morning about John. First, his unique origin. Second, we're going to look at his essential message. And third, his supreme moment. So first, John's unique origin. Almost everything we know about John's origin, we know from Luke. You'll notice that Matthew doesn't really say much. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. So even Matthew just jumps into the ministry of John. Mark does the same. But Luke gives us a lot, of, a lot more information. Luke tells us that John's parents conceived him in their old age. They were barren their whole life. So they get married, they want to have kids, and they're unable to have kids their whole life until they're very old, beyond the time of having kids. As sometimes it so often is with God, he works like that. And it's actually a very beautiful story of prayer, illustrating prayer to God and how God answers prayer. Because in Zechariah, his father's old age, an angel appears to him and says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now, how long do you think he's been praying for him and his wife, Elizabeth, to have children? Probably the moment they found out they were barren, which is probably pretty early. And so I think we can reasonably infer that for most of their marriage, they were praying that God would give them a child. And finally, at the end of, 
at the near end of their life when they're old, the angel shows up and says, your prayer's been heard. Isn't that interesting? It's really a beautiful picture of, of answered prayer. Sometimes we pray, and because God doesn't immediately answer our prayer, we think that he doesn't listen to our prayers, he doesn't hear our prayers. But learn the lesson of John's parents, that you might pray for a long time, or who knows, maybe they prayed at first and then gave up praying because God, they didn't think, was answering. Maybe there was a huge gap of no prayer, but God remembered their initial prayer. We don't know. But we can know this. Just because God doesn't answer prayers immediately doesn't mean he doesn't hear our prayers. So that's a beautiful example. So they conceived in their old age. About the time the Virgin Mary conceived, Jesus. So John and Jesus are about the same age. So John's birth was miraculous. God had a very special plan for John. His whole life was mapped out. That was the reason why he was born. It's a wonderful thing. It's not only Jesus who's born with a purpose, but throughout the Bible, people are born with a purpose. His whole life is mapped out. John's divinely named. In Luke, it tells us, the angel says, you shall name him John. You ever noticed that or thought about the fact that he was named John? So what does John mean? It's obviously important if he was named by God. The name means God or Jehovah is gracious. That's what John means. Beautiful name. Jehovah is gracious. So a very fitting name for the prophet who pointed to Christ. Actually, if you look at all the names of the Old Testament prophets, they're all very beautiful like that. Jehovah is gracious. Jehovah is our salvation. Jehovah is our strength. Jehovah is our health. All these prophets' names. I think God probably had a hand in naming them too. Or choosing them because of their name. John was a Nazarite. The angel said, you don't just name, his, name him John, but he shall be a Nazarite. That means he's never going to drink any alcohol. Not that that's a sin, but a Nazarite was set apart. A Nazarite was set apart for special service to God. And normally, someone would be a Nazarite for a temporary period. That means they'd, they'd willingly set themselves apart from the norm. They wouldn't do what everybody else does, even though it's not sinful, to serve God. They would abstain from cutting their hair. They would abstain from drinking alcohol. They would abstain from just many of the mundane, normal things. The point is that they're set apart for God's service. And John would be a Nazarite from his birth. He'd be a Nazarite his whole life. His life was set apart. John lived in the desert even before he preached. It tells us in Luke. Even before he began preaching, he was in the desert until that time. So he had a very strange life. Did you notice? Look at verse 4. How did he look? Now this is not how people looked back in those days. Don't think of uh, the, in the first century everyone wore cavemen clothes. They didn't. So look at John. The same John, I mean, Matthew, all the Gospels, except John, the Apostle John, records his clothing. Uh, the same John had his raiment of camel hair and a leather girdle about his loins. So you're getting the picture. And his food, this was not normal either, except for those who lived in the desert. His food was locusts, and wild honey. That probably wasn't bee honey, like honey from the honeybee. That same word in the Greek could be tree honey, like sap. 
So, and that's actually uh, common food for desert people, locusts and sap. <laughs> so um, it's interesting that even today, those who live in the desert eat locusts and sap as well. It's interesting. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. It's the beautiful thing about the Bible is you can go to the biblical world and obviously there's been a lot of changes, but there actually hasn't been that many changes. There's a lot of things that are carried over. Turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. And look at the mission of this set-apart man. You ever wanted to know more about John the Baptist? Really, what was his purpose? What was his point? Luke gives us the mission. I'm gonna, we're going to look at three, three passages. Two in Luke and one in the Gospel of John. This is the mission of John the Baptist. This is why he was named. This is why he was conceived. The man didn't even have to be born because his parents were barren. This was a special divine birth, naming, Nazarite set apart for this mission. And look at Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The angel is now telling this to his father, Zechariah. Listen very carefully. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's the purpose, the angel says, of why this child is born. Amazing. What a purpose. He's going to turn many people to the Lord their God. He's going to be like Elijah in spirit and power. It means what he's like and in power as well. His strength. And to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament, and scholars believe what that means is not to fix family relations. Not to fix family relations, like fathers and children are fighting and John's coming to fix family relations. But that is to turn the people of his day back to the faith of the fathers, the patriarchs. And in the prophet, it, it, it says to turn the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. He kind of just quotes it in brief. But the idea is to bring their heart and their heart together in one. He further expounds that saying by the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That's quite a packed phrase there, isn't it? So one thing we are familiar with John is that he preached repentance. When you think repentance, think this. He turns people to God and he turns them to the faith of the fathers, which is that he turns the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. We often think of repentance or repent when we think of John. Here's a little definition of what that means. Now, it doesn't mean, I mentioned Elijah. Did you know that in those days, the Jewish people, because the Old Testament said God would send Elijah before the Messiah, they actually thought that perhaps Elijah, who ascended into heaven on a chariot, was himself going to come back before the Christ. So if you notice in John, that's why they asked him, are you Elijah? And 
John says, no, I'm not. Well, later Jesus says, yes, he is, right? So is John not understanding who he is? Is Jesus in conflict with John? The answer to that is simply that they were asking him, are you Elijah, literally? Are you literally Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not. But like Elijah, who was a prophet in some of the darkest days of Israel, and who turned, actually there's a verse in the Old Testament that said Elijah turned the people back to worshiping God by his amazing encounter there on Mount Carmel. Not everyone obviously went back, but many did. Elijah was sent by God to confront idolatry and to turn people back to God. Next passage, chapter 1, verse 76 and to 79. This is now John's father. John has been born. They just named him John, and now Zechariah, is, his tongue was loosed because Zechariah, as many of the biblical characters, is not, a, is not always a, an ideal man. And he didn't believe the angel at first, and so the angel struck him with muteness. He couldn't speak until finally John was born, John was named, and suddenly God loosed his tongue, and he began to prophesy, and Zechariah says this concerning his son, the father says of his son in verse 76, and you child shall be called the prophet of the highest. What a title. For you shall go before his face, before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through, this is one long sentence, the tender mercy of our God. That's one long sentence. He says, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people. So he's going to show the people how to be saved. And this is it. By the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God. Interesting. So how does remission of sins come according to John? Through the tender mercy of God. And here's a beautiful saying in the Greek. The tender mercy of God. It's beautiful in English and it's beautiful in the Greek. It really points to God's inward compassion. The bowels of his mercy. He loves us. And he's compassionate and merciful inside. In his heart towards us. And through that, we're forgiven of our sins. We're forgiven of our sins because of God's amazing tender mercy. Isn't that wonderful? If you've experienced the forgiveness of sins, understand that it's because God had intense inner compassion and tender mercy on you. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And if you're not forgiven, understand that forgiveness is being extended to you because of God's intense inner tender compassion and mercy towards you. Do you think of God like that? Is the mercy of God just some you know, um, programmed computer attribute of God? Or is it really the heart of a beautiful person towards you? John wants you to know that. And he's the prophet of the highest. Isn't that amazing? He says, to give the knowledge of, the sal- of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the day spring, that is the sunrise. In the Old Testament, the Messiah, his coming was likened to a sun rising in the east, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. This tender mercy is manifested in the coming of the sun to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that beautiful? Turn with me to John chapter 1. This last passage that gives us the mission of John. John, the, the gospel of John is so beautiful because when it's looking at John the Baptist, John doesn't record the historical stuff. Luke, Matthew, Mark, they say, in those days John came in the wilderness and was baptizing people. Listen to what John says, though. John looks at it not from a historical perspective, but from a theological perspective. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us the facts. There was a, John the Baptist came in the wilderness and he was baptizing people. That's the historical facts. Look what John says in verse chapter 1, John 1, 6 and 7. He simply says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. That's what he says John's mission was. So he didn't say John came in the wilderness preaching and was baptizing. He just says there was a man sent from God. He's giving us the theological interpretation of this man. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He doesn't say the Baptist. The Baptist was his popular title. That's what people knew him as. We'll talk about that more in a moment. There was a man sent from God named Jehovah's Gracious, and his purpose was to be a witness of Christ, the light, so that everyone through him might believe. That's what John wanted people to do, believe in Christ. Back to Matthew 3. So we have a miraculous birth, a divine name, a Nazarite set apart for this mission. And the last thing we'll say about this is that the sending of John the Baptist was a prophetic fulfillment. The existence of John is the existence of fulfilled prophecy. For John is spoken of in the Old Testament. As, all the, as the gospel authors tell us, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, and in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it predicted that one would come before the coming of Christ, a forerunner to prepare the way for Jesus. When John is spoken of in Isaiah 40, that's the mark of the second part of Isaiah. If you're familiar with Isaiah, the first part is kind of, is kind of full of judgment and, and uh, crying out against Israel's sin, and the second part is full of consolation and comfort. It starts with, comfort my people. In verse 3, it says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So John really marks a shift from the old way of the prophets crying out the judgments of God against Israel to the consolations and the pointing to the Messiah at hand. If anyone ever claims to be the Messiah, just ask them, do they have a forerunner like John the Baptist? I think we would eliminate many candidates for the Messiah if we kept in mind that one of the messianic 
prophecies was that he would have one come before him to prepare the way in the spirit and power of Elijah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's amazing how people forget these things and follow after these false messiahs. Where's your John the Baptist, you should ask? We underestimate how popular John was. Notice in Matthew chapter 3, verse 5, it says, how many people went out to go see him? What does it say? A lot of them. All Judea, all the region around Jordan and Jerusalem. Went out to him Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan. John was extremely popular. The Jewish historian Josephus records a lengthy section all on John the Baptist. Josephus not even a Christian. But he's got to record it because John was so popular that he himself says that Israel went out to see John the Baptist in the wilderness. Many people thought he was the Christ. Herod Antipas, who killed John and had his head cut off, later had a great military defeat. And the popular opinion in Israel was that he was defeated because he killed John the Baptist. That was the popular opinion of the people in those days. So John was extremely popular. Many people thought he might be the Christ. And that's why John again says, no, I'm not the Christ. So there was huge messianic expectation in those days. They were expecting the Messiah to show up, and all of a sudden, John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness preaching what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let me read to you a quote by Alfred, Edersh Alfred Edersheim. He's an a, um, authority, a historical authority in these, um, of the first century. He says, St. Luke furnishes us with the precise time the Baptist appeared in public. Not merely to fix the exact chronology, which would not have required so many details, but for a higher purpose. For they indicate more clearly than the most elaborate discussion the fitness of the moment for the advent of the kingdom of heaven. For the first time since the Babylonian captivity, the foreigner, the chief of the hated Roman Empire, according to the rabbis, that was the fourth beast of Daniel's vision, was absolute and undisputed master of Judea. So what he's saying here is at this time, the Roman Empire is reigning over Israel. Actually, when John the Baptist showed up, Pontius Pilate was actually ruling in Jerusalem. They didn't have a Herod reigning. They had a Roman reigning in Jerusalem over Judea. And the chief religious office, which was the high priest, was divided between two equally unworthy of its functions. So, I don't know if you've noticed that, but in the New Testament, it tells us that there was two high priests, Caiaphas and Annas. Now, there's only supposed to be one, but there was two, and it was all political, if you look into the history of that. They weren't worthy of their function. So, the point that Edersheim is saying is that when John the Baptist showed up, it couldn't have been a more perfect time. People were expecting the kingdom of heaven the Roman Empire was at its peak. The Roman Empire had control over the entire known world, pretty much, and it was at its peak. It had accomplished so many things. But the thing is that the Roman Empire was marked at that time with cruelty. Half of the empire was slaves that were treated as dirt, and the other half were wealthy people that basically were empty in their lives. They didn't even work. And... They just filled their life 
with entertainment and riches and indulgence, and they were empty. Religion was meaningless to them. There were so many pagan gods that meant nothing to them. So the Roman Empire, think about it, was the kingdom of man, had conquered the whole world, and people were empty. It was cruel. It was not promising, even though they claimed to be basically what the world needed. The world needs a unifying kingdom. But hope wasn't to be found in the Roman Empire. You know, a lot of people are political these days too. And they think that if we can just have this person in power and this government system, and if it can just be universal, then everyone will be happy. But brothers and sisters, there is no kingdom of man that will ever fulfill the human heart. There's no kingdom of man that will ever bring peace upon the world. And the Roman Empire was proving that at that time. It was at its peak and people were empty and miserable. And certainly the Israelites with their promises in the Old Testament were not putting their hope in the Roman Empire. But at the same time, their own kingdom was at a low because they were conquered and their religious system was in shambles at that time as well. One more quote by Edersheim. He goes on to say, Such a combination of political and religious distress surely constituted the time of Israel's utmost need. As yet, no attempt had been made by the people to right themselves by armed force. So they hadn't tried to overthrow the Romans at this point. They did later, and that's what got them destroyed. In these circumstances, the cry that the kingdom of heaven was near at hand and the call to preparation for it must have awakened echoes throughout the land and startled the most careless and unbelieving. So Edersheim saying, no wonder people flocked out to hear John. The Roman Empire was not promising, and Israel was at a low place, and all the prophets had said that the kingdom would come. About that time, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, now John preaches. Think about it. Have you ever thought about how beautiful the kingdom of heaven is. You know what the prophets foretold? We're not going to look at all the scriptures because there's so many. But the prophets of the Old Testament foretold, this was the hope of the people, that God himself would reign over the entire world. The kingdom would come through the Messiah and it would be a global kingdom. It would be heavenly and it would be permanent. Think about it. The kingdom would reign over the entire world. Everyone would be under the dominion of Messiah the King, and it would be marked by peace and righteousness, heavenliness, and it would be permanent. It would never end. And brothers and sisters, there is no heathen hope or non-Christian hope or non-Jewish hope, you could say, that matches that, is there? That is the greatest hope for this earth and for mankind. God himself reigning as king over everybody. There's not one country, not one people who isn't under his reign. And it's marked by peace, joy, righteousness, heavenliness, and it lasts forever. What an exciting thing. And they were hoping and waiting at that time for it. And so John the Baptist says, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No wonder they were excited. But there's two obstacles to the kingdom of heaven coming. Number one, the obstacle, the external obstacle. 
Well, in order for God to reign over the, all the earth, you've got to kick the Romans out of here, and you've got to set up a king, and you have to subject everybody to it. But then there's also the internal obstacle, which was the heart of man and the heart of the people of Israel. And at John's day, people were just wanting the king to come and set up his kingdom and reign. They didn't realize there was an internal problem in their own hearts. This is what John came to address. He came to prepare the way of the Lord by turning people's hearts back to God. So let's move on to our second point, his essential message. John's essential message. Repent. Turn to God. Change your mind and have a new way of thinking. And by doing this, you turn back to God. What, is ex what exactly does turning to God or repenting involve? Let's look at verse 5 to 12 of Matthew 3. This gives us the substance of his preaching. Matthew chooses, John obviously said a lot of things, and Matthew chooses to record this. It says, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now is also the axe laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which brings forth which brings not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here's John's the substance of his preaching. So men came to him and were baptized of him. As far as we know, John was the first person to ever baptize anyone. That doesn't mean that there wasn't baptism before John, but it was all self-administered. You would baptize yourself. And as far as we know in history, John was the first person to get into the water with other people and baptize them. So he's called the Baptist. People came to him and were baptized to him by him, submitting to his teaching. What's unusual about John's baptism is he's baptizing Jews, whereas when Gentiles would convert, they would be baptized. Or when Levites would do their service, they would ceremonially cleanse themselves in water by baptism. They do that themselves. But John's calling everyone to baptism. John's calling even Roman soldiers to baptism, it says in Luke. And he's also calling the average Jew to baptism, which was very strange. And his baptism wasn't just to cleanse you from ceremonially, ceremonial uncleanness. When you go get baptized in the, to, for, uh, as a Levite or as a Gentile becoming a Jew, you'd acknowledge, I'm ceremonially unclean and I need to be cleansed. John was calling people to acknowledge their moral uncleanness and to be cleansed from their moral uncleanness. So they came and confessed their sins. They didn't just say, I'm a dirty Gentile who's been eating pigs my whole life and I need to be ceremonially clean. It's more like, I'm a human being 
who's sinned against God and I'm morally unclean and I'm confessing my sins. That's what they came. Mark also mentions that men confess their sins when they are baptized. And it should make us think of the verse in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If a person doesn't confess that they're morally unclean, then they aren't going to understand and come to God for cleansing from unrighteousness. Confessing you're morally unclean doesn't just mean that you confess that you sin every now and again and that you're not perfect. It's a confession that you yourself are a moral failure. You're not a good person who just makes some mistakes. You're a bad person. You're an immoral person. Do you believe that about yourself? It's hard sometimes to admit that, isn't it? You're not just a good person who's got a few flaws, but you're a bad person who needs God. Like Christian baptism, John's water didn't save anybody, but it was an act of faith in the one who can. And so we read in Acts chapter 19, verse 4, the Apostle Paul describes John's baptism like this. He said, John baptized people with the baptism of repentance, telling them to put their faith in the one who was to come. Since Christ's death, we continue to baptize, and baptism has become a symbol of union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So it's not just getting cleansed from impurity, but we also see in baptism a death and a resurrection with Christ, who's the one who cleanses us. So now it's taken upon full meaning. Now notice the Pharisees and the Sadducees come, and is John excited about this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to his baptism? It doesn't necessarily mean they came to be baptized. Perhaps some of them did. But it's more likely, from the words of John, that they just came to check out what was going on. Obviously, if so many people were coming out and being baptized, then the Pharisees wanted to come out also to see, to investigate. And John has some harsh words for them. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, he doesn't close the door completely on them. He says... If you really are coming to me, and if you really have a repentant heart, then show it. That's what he means when he says, Bear, bring forth fruit. Meet for repentance. If you're really repentant, show it. Prove it. Because at this point, I don't see it, is what he's saying. You brood of vipers. Obviously, they weren't repentant because the same one that he was foretelling, the same one that he was proclaiming, Jesus, later they were plotting to kill him. So how could they have repentant hearts? Bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Notice the word fruit in verse 10. It says, Now is the axe laid into the root of the trees, therefore every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down. So the issue is good fruit versus bad fruit. Not just fruit versus no fruit. Everyone bears fruit. Everyone is a tree 
and everyone bears fruit. The question is, is it good fruit or is it bad fruit that you bear? Because every tree that bears bad fruit is hewn down and cut, cut down and thrown into the fire. That's not a very pleasant picture, is it? That should make us um, concerned and urgent to know whether we are good trees or bad trees. That's not something you can be really casual about, is it? Every tree, not one bad tree is going to be overlooked. Every tree. But what does that mean? What does it mean to bear good fruit? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean. Bearing good fruit doesn't mean works-based righteousness. John is not saying every tree that doesn't work good works and has a outward righteousness that we can tell and see is hewn down and cut down and thrown into the fire. Let me tell you three reasons why that's not true. Number one, it goes against the gospel. The gospel is that it's not by our works, even our good works, that we're saved. Righteousness doesn't come by obedience to the law, but righteousness comes by faith in Christ without obedience to the law. And so if John was saying, you need to have obedience to the law or works righteousness in order to be good tree, and if you don't, I'll cut you down, God's going to cut you down and throw you into the fire, then that would go against the gospel. Second thing, that was the Pharisees' problem in the first place. They were attempting to be good trees by works-based righteousness and by obedience to the law. The Apostle Paul, when you think of Pharisees, think of him before he was a Christian. Paul says of his own people, they're very zealous for God. They just don't have knowledge. They're going about to establish their own righteousness. And they've not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. He's speaking from his own personal experience before he became a Christian. In Philippians chapter 3, he said, If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, I could have more. Because of who I was, I was a, an Israelite, a Hebrew, child of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee by doctrine. I was very zealous for God. I was trying to keep the righteousness of the law, and I realized it's all worth nothing. So John isn't saying, you Pharisees, show us you're really repentant by going and, and stopping your sins and keeping the law and doing what's right. That's not what he's saying. Because that's what the Pharisees believed. They probably said those very same things. You guys got to show you're repentant in the synagogues. Everyone's got to repent, but show you're repentant by stopping your sins and obeying the law and doing what's right. Thirdly, the passage itself suggests otherwise and suggests what I'm saying. Because in verse 9, I believe we have an example of bad fruit. Verse 9 is connected to verse 8. He says, show you're repentant and don't say within yourself, we have Abraham as our father. It was very common in those days because the Pharisees taught this. It almost sounds like grace that if, as long as you're a Jew, as you're circumcised and you're connected with Abraham, you'll be okay. No, no Jew is going to go to hell. No Jew is going to go to outer darkness or outside of the kingdom of God. They were resting their hope of acceptance with God upon their physical descent. 
But every Jew knew it wasn't just by being a Jew. You also had to be circumcised and be obedient to the law or you could be cut off. They were resting their hope that they were a Jew, but they were basing their hope that they were a Jew upon physical descent, obedience to the law, outward privilege, and their own righteousness. And John the Baptist attacks this idea and says, that is bad fruit. Think not to say, he says. Repentance means change your mind. So this is what they were thinking. They were thinking and therefore saying, oh, we got Abraham as our father. We're going to be okay. That was the ground of their hope. I'm not going to be cut down. I've got Abraham as my father. John's saying, no. There's only one basis of acceptance with God, and that is righteousness. But how does righteousness come? John turns them to the wisdom of the just. And brothers and sisters, good fruit is when you rest your hope not upon who you are as a physical person, not upon the things that you do, not upon even association with your church. Do you think it's because you go to All Saints Church that you'll be saved? If you come to John with a hope in any of those things, he would probably say to you, prove that you're really repentant and don't say within yourself that you're going to be okay because of those things. The wisdom of the just is what? The wisdom of Abraham. The wisdom of all the saints who have ever been righteous. The wisdom that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The wisdom of the just is that it is not by our own works that we're righteous, but it's by the Messiah, the one who comes into the world to die for our sins and to be our righteousness for us. That is how we are accepted on that basis. Salvation through the tender mercies of God, through the day spring. Turn to Matthew 21. Amazing thing Jesus has to say here about this. Matthew 21, verse 31 and 32. Just starting in the middle of the verse with Jesus, he says, Jesus says unto them, Truly I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness. Now, as a Christian, when we read that phrase, what should be going off in our minds? What is the way of righteousness? Is it the law? No. So John didn't just come saying, if you want to be accepted in the kingdom of God, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then stop your sins and be obedient to all the law of Moses. That's what the Pharisees believed. And he was attacking them for that very belief. He came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And you, when you had seen it, repented not afterward that you may believe him. So here's an amazing thing. The harlots and the publicans at the time of John were actually entering into the kingdom of God. People were actually being saved through the preaching of John the Baptist. And most of them were sinners, publicans, harlots. They were being saved at the time, entering into the kingdom of God. And we know 
that you can't enter into the kingdom of God unless you're righteous. So that means they were becoming righteous, but how were they becoming righteous? Not through their own works, but through faith in the one who was to come. And the Pharisees didn't believe. So the essential message of John was confess your moral unworthiness and your uncleanness. Look to the one who is to come and don't rest your hope upon anything except him. He is the only way to be righteous. This is the wisdom of the just. Lastly, in chapter 3, John's supreme moment was when he baptized Jesus. So Jesus now comes to John, and it's an amazing thing to John. John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and you come to me. So the prophet of the highest confesses his own unworthiness. Brothers and sisters, there is no sinlessness like Jesus. He alone is sinless. He alone is worthy. In the book of Revelation, which we read on Friday, there was a scroll in the, in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. And there was a question asked, who's worthy to open up the scroll? The way some people read the Bible, you would think that Abraham or David or John the Baptist would just march right up there and open it up. Noah, Job, you name it. But it says no one was worthy, not in heaven, not in earth or under the earth. No one is worthy to open the scroll except for one. That is Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who was slain. Let's not read about John and Noah and Job and Abraham and think that these men were worthy because they themselves would tell you we're not. There's only one. The question is, why then did Jesus come to be baptized? There's many reasons people put forth to explain why Jesus came to be baptized. But the text tells us why. He says, let it be so that we may fulfill all righteousness. So the question isn't why did he become why did he come to be baptized? We know that. The question is, how does his baptism fulfill all righteousness? Of course, the answer to this is that his baptism in itself doesn't fulfill it, but he couldn't have fulfilled all righteousness without it. He's saying, in order for us to fulfill all righteousness, or in order for me to fulfill all righteousness, this is a necessary thing that must be done. Jesus fulfilled righteousness by coming to this earth and obeying the Father in all things. He was being obedient to his Father when he identified himself as a sinner, with sinners. Not that he was a sinner, but he identified himself with them and says, I'm with these guys from beginning to end. It wasn't just on the cross when Jesus identified himself with sinful mankind. But even by him going to the River Jordan and being baptized was him identifying himself with us in our sin. And thus it was the purpose of the life and death of Jesus, to identify with us for our salvation. What if he hadn't? What if he hadn't been baptized? What if he had stood on the shore and just looked at everybody and says, yeah, stand over there, apart from me, because I'm holier than thou. 
as it says in Isaiah. He didn't do that. He could have. He could have said, Yanni, you stay over there. I'm higher than you are. Isn't it amazing that the one who actually could have said that didn't? And he got into the water with you. And he ate with you, which also was outrageous. And then he was numbered with the transgressors and died a criminal's death on the cross. He did it because the Father and he loves sinners and loves you, a sinner. Isn't that wonderful? It was love that brought Jesus to earth, that brought him to the waters of baptism, that brought him to the house of Zacchaeus, that brought him to the place of scourging, nails, crown of thorns, the tomb, for us and for our our salvation. The Spirit comes upon him, like it says in the Old Testament, prophets, many times the Spirit would rest upon the Messiah that he might proclaim the good news. The Father's pleasure is communicated at this moment. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Two things about that. Number one, that's a, a statement found in the Psalms and found in 2 Samuel 7 regarding the king. It's a kingly statement. When he says, this is my beloved son, God is saying, this is the king. So everywhere in Matthew, we're going to see the kingliness of Jesus shine through. But second of all, he says, I'm pleased with him. And at this point, we don't really know much about Jesus, if we are reading this for the first time, because he hasn't done much. But God, who knows everything that he's going to do, including his death for sinners, says, I am pleased with him. God is pleased that the Son came, identified with sinners, and died for us, because it's God's pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's important that we understand that it's God's good pleasure to save us. That God is happy and joyful and excited to welcome us in. Do you believe that about yourself? Jesus assured us, fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's the Father's good pleasure to send his Son. And our Father in heaven says it to every one of his children too, I believe. Not because we are good in and of ourselves, but as children of God adopted in Christ, God can look upon each one of you and say, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. What a, what a, what a statement to hear about yourself as well. Imagine waking up and hearing that and going through your day understanding the love and the pleasure of God towards you as his child. I think we often don't hear that voice. But let us hear it. So in conclusion, like Israel, many of us, we want the external but are unaware of the internal problem. We think about heaven and we think how wonderful it would be to go there. How wonderful it would be if Jesus came back and set up the kingdom on earth. But do we realize that there's an internal problem? There's moral uncleanness in us and unrighteousness. The question is, are you right with God? Are you righteous before him? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you been cleansed from all unrighteousness?
The question is, what are you trusting in to make you righteous? Are you trusting in who you are and what you've done like the Pharisees? Or are you trusting in Christ, the one who was coming when John was preaching and the one who has come and whom we preach today? Do you realize you're a sinner who needs him? Believe in Jesus Christ and what he did for you and rest your hope solely upon that as we sang this morning in the song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. You too can be turned to God and to the wisdom of the just. The voice of John the Baptist is still heard today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Flee from the wrath to come. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, we do long for your kingdom to come. We thank you that your son, the king, has come and that we who have believed on him have entered the kingdom and that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and that we have become righteous through your son and what he's done for us. And we thank you, God, because we know there's no way to be righteous apart from him. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the amazing hope we have that when your son comes back, the whole earth will come under his dominion of righteousness and peace. And we look forward to that, Lord. But Lord, if there's anyone here that is not righteous and has not been forgiven, and that day will be a day of wrath for them, I pray that you'd open their eyes to see their moral uncleanliness, that they would see their need for cleansing, and they would see where that cleansing is to be had in the sun. Thank you that you love us with a compassion that comes from your heart. Please help us to see that it's your pleasure to save us and that we who are in you are beloved and that nothing can ever more separate us from you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this time. And we praise you and pray these things in the name of your blessed Son. Jesus Christ.